What's going on, everyone? And welcome in to Plazon's podcast, filled to the brim with glitchy analysis and freezing cold takes so cold that they're boiling hot. Today's podcast is proudly sponsored by Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. Check out their website for takeout and delivery deals. Right now, they've got an awesome takeout deal. Get a large one-topping pizza for just $7.99. Thank you so much again to Hungry Howie's Baton Rouge. And in today's episode, we're going to go over last night's news today, as well as the winners and losers of the college basketball regular season. And last but not least, we've got a Q&A for you guys. So stay tuned to the end to get a few questions. So let's go ahead and get started with our first piece of news. The Los Angeles Clippers went to San Francisco last night to play the Warriors. They were up big in the first half, but ended up getting blown out in the second half, losing 115 to 91. Paul George had a putrid performance. 11 points on 3 of 15 from the field. I can't believe that it was that bad. The Warriors outscored the Clippers 70 to 35 in the second half. More notably, though, 42 to 16 in the third quarter. Now, this is extremely important for those of you who are paying close attention to the basketball standings right now. The third quarter scoring differential, okay, that's what the Warriors' bread and butter is on, and they just beat Portland doing exactly that. Now they've beaten Los Angeles, two playoff contending teams, okay? Here is the stat, though. The Warriors last year were number one in third quarter scoring differential. When they come out of the half firing all cylinders, there's not a single thing that anyone in the league can do to stop them. Now, just for example, let's take a look at some of their championship seasons. The greatest team of all time, the 73-9 and Warriors, well, the greatest regular season team of all time, number one in third quarter scoring differential. 17-18, number one in scoring differential. 18-19, number two in scoring differential. This is their M.O., all right. Now, the interesting strat that the Warriors implemented last night is something that I am probably going to see a lot more often when we have teams that have non-shooters like Russell Westbrook in the game. Draymond Green was the primary defender on Westbrook last night, and for a lot of possessions, he chose just not to guard him at all beyond the three-point line. I didn't see him out there trying to put a hand in his face or anything. He basically just said, if you're going to beat us by making threes, Russell Westbrook, then go ahead. We're not going to defend it. And by the end of the game, Westbrook was intimidated. He shot 3 of 12 from the floor, and he had the ball wide open at the top of the key on multiple possessions and did not take the shot. I think we're going to see this more often on players like Ben Simmons, Russell Westbrook, and there's a lot of players in the draft that really can't shoot, that we're going to see defenses test their mentality, test their mental strength to say, if you're going to shoot, then go ahead and shoot it because no one's going to come out there to stop you. Look, all that being said, do not let this Warriors team get healthy. Stephen Curry is coming back reportedly on Sunday versus the Lakers, and Andrew Wiggins is having a family issue that he's dealing with, but they'll both be back. And I don't know if you guys know this, but right now the highest scoring differential starting lineup is the Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, Draymond Green, Andrew Wiggins, and Kevon Looney. Dangerous. Dangerous game. Not to mention, you're going to have Poole coming off the bench. Kaminga is stepping into his own. And they've got other good role players like Dante DiVincenzo and Moses Moody. This Warriors team, I promise. I said this a couple podcast episodes ago. You don't want to see him in the playoffs. Just keep an eye out. I'm telling you right now. 
Second game from last night that we're going to kind of go over, Mavericks versus 76ers. Now, the Mavericks were able to capitalize this. They were at a pretty good lead, actually, going into the fourth. But they won the game 133-126 to behind Luka and Kyrie, who had a magical night. Both of them combined for 82 points on 28 of 44 from the field. Now, look, this can mean one of two things. One, Luka and Kyrie are getting it together. Or two, they're two of the most talented guards going up against James Harden and Tyrese Maxey on the defensive end. Now, I'm still not buying that this Luka-Kyrie thing will work. There's only one basketball, and both of them needed to succeed. It, It's kind of what makes them elite, holding the ball and being able to dribble or make moves by themselves in an ISO situation or in a pick-and-roll situation. And it's hard to have two of the exact same type players on the court. I just don't know how this is going to work in a playoff setting where the game is slower, where the refs let you play, and a lot of people get really physical. Now, Luka kind of responded well to that up until he played the Golden State Warriors, obviously the championship winners, but I don't know if Kyrie responds well to that. We're going to have to wait and see. Now, third up on our NBA news that we need to catch you up on, LeBron James is out for at least three weeks with a foot tendon injury. I'm going to go ahead and be honest, guys. My freezing cold take on Monday was unbelievably cold, you could have boiled a pot of potatoes in less than 30 seconds. Like I said, out for three weeks, and that's just to get reevaluated. It'll probably be more time. Currently, the Lakers are the 11th seed. To me, this is a do-not-resuscitate situation. Do not come back from this this season, LeBron, and risk further injury. It's time to look for next year. And to be honest, the Lakers are looking good for next year, okay? They've got some ability to free up some cap space and sign some good free agents. I think LeBron and AD are going to be back again. I don't know if the Lakers are going to be able to trade him. And I'm talking about AD, by the way. But they've got the right pieces in place. I like the Jared Vanderbilt trade. I like the D'Angelo Russell trade. But they have to make another move in free agency to be viable or at least make a trade. Trade away those 2027-2029 picks because the Western Conference, outside of maybe the Suns, is wide open. And when you think about the Suns, you're talking about CP3 and Kevin Durant, some of the most injury-prone superstars of the past decade. Lakers, buy in. Now, last part of the NBA news, this is really not that much of news. I just wanted to give J.J. Redick some credit. This guy has got to be the best analyst in the game right now. He is so unbiased, it's not funny. I'm not talking about like he doesn't have his own personal vendettas or opinions. Everybody does. When somebody says, I'm unbiased, they're lying. Everybody has biases because of where you grew up or how you grew up or what environment and friends you had around you when you were going through your adolescence and even into your professional careers. Everybody's got bias. But J.J. Reddick does such a good job at not doubling down on bad takes. Just recently, we had the Kendrick Perkins versus J.J. Reddick drama where Kendrick Perkins said Nikola Jokic was stat padding, but then J.J. Reddick was like, well, if he's stat padding, then why is he 23-0 when he puts up a triple-double in the past season and a half? And Kendrick Perkins basically just said something, something, something along the lines of, I'm a fool and I'm doubling down on this take. But no disrespect to Kendrick Perkins. Obviously, that's what almost every member in the media does, including yours truly. I'm sure that I've done that in the past, and I'm sure that I'll probably do that in the future. This game, this media game, is a lot of 
ego. It's a lot of, you know, I'm right and I'm going to be right. And if I'm not right, I'm still right. I just want to give JJ Reddick some credit. He is one of the only analysts that actually get it right using statistics and sharp input as well as wit. Now, I think that this is because he has like kind of the Tony Romo syndrome. If you guys remember, shortly after Tony Romo retired, he went into CBS and all the social medias were like, oh my gosh, Tony Romo is predicting every single play. Well, that's because he was fresh off the presses from out of the NFL and he knew the play concepts. But as we've gone further and further away from that, it you know, it could be because he's not paying as close of attention or it could be because NFL offenses are evolving and he doesn't have the inside scoop anymore. So maybe J.J. Reddick has got a little bit of the Tony Romo syndrome in terms of being right because he was just around all these teams. But I still want to give him credit. He's doing an amazing job. And that's going to move us right into our NFL news segment. First up, we're talking about the NFL Combine and the latest. Okay, We had one huge winner at the Combine yesterday. Not in terms, they didn't win anything, but like their draft stock went way up. And that's Nolan Smith, the edge rusher outside of Georgia. He posted a 4.3940. He weighed in at 238 pounds at 6'2. That's a little light for an edge rusher, but those kind of measurables, though, are insane. Now, he was out for a majority of the season last year with a torn pectoral muscle, and his draft stock kind of fell, but he's definitely rising now. He's known for his hard work and dedication. I've been told by different reporters, haha, LOL, just kidding. I've heard from different reporters that he has performed well in terms of draft interviews and draft tests, and I think his draft stock is going to continue to rise. This seems like the draft of edge rushers. I mean, you've got Will Anderson, Tyree Wilson, et cetera, et cetera. He is just another one of those guys that are going to be in the first round. Now let's talk about combine losers and it has nothing to do with their combine scores it has everything to do with the news around him Jalen Carter returned to the combine after he was arrested on two misdemeanors for reckless driving in a fatal driving accident now the question around this is will it hurt his draft stock as of right now he is not being charged with anything related to the death directly of this person that was on the Georgia football team formerly but it's just not a good look. According to some other sources, he told officers that he was a mile away from the crash that killed the Georgia player, but he actually wasn't. And I don't know who I buy in this story. Do I buy him? Do I buy the officers? We're just going to have to wait until all of the facts come out. So for right now, I don't think his draft stock is going to drop. I've heard that he was a good interview and that he owned up to his responsibilities in this incident, but that he is saying that he is ultimately innocent. And I do believe that we should believe that he's innocent until proven guilty. That's what we're supposed to believe as Americans. But regardless of that, he's got a lot of explaining to do into why he was in that situation. So his draft stock, maybe not number one overall pick, but I still think he's a top 10 pick. Now, Let's talk about something else that happened at the Combine. The Baltimore Ravens quite literally are falling apart. Rashad Bateman tweeted at his NFL GM. He didn't directly at him, but he tweeted a comment meant for his GM. Eric DaCosta got on to an interview with some reporters and basically said that he has yet to hit big on an NFL wide receiver. 
a straight disrespectful slight to every single Baltimore Raven wide receiver that they have right now. Now, at the same time, I understand where he's coming from in terms of, well, we don't have a pro bowler or an all pro on our team. But I think part of the reason is, is because Rashad Bateman has not been healthy. Anyways, Bateman basically just told him to stop lying and not to put the blame on the players and to take responsibility for yourself. But overall, just a terrible look for the Baltimore Ravens. It doesn't seem like they could do anything right right now. They can't even sign their franchise quarterback. Last but not least in the NFL news, 1,300 players were asked questions about NFL teams, and they were asked to grade these teams on what the teams are best at and what team is best to play for. They graded teams on things like travel, facilities, trainers, nutrition, etc., etc., including also treatment of families, which apparently was a big thing. We're going to have to get into that in just a second. But can you guess who ranked the lowest out of all these teams as to who's the best team to play for? The Washington Commanders. Of course they did. They ranked dead last. It wasn't even close. But here are some other reports of notes. Okay, The Vikings, the Dolphins, the Raiders were top three in the best teams to play for, which is surprising, but they did things well like facilities and training staffs and etc., etc. But the Jacksonville Jaguars apparently had rats in their locker room not to mention they took a bad rap for that. They also got a bad beat in the sense that the Jags and the Bengals had reports of players' wives breastfeeding in the public restrooms of the stadium on the floor. They were sitting on a public bathroom floor breastfeeding. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, stuff my nose at anyone or anything like that. But, like, a NFL player's wife or girlfriend or whatever partner breastfeeding in a public restroom floor definitely does not sound like the treatment that you want to have for your NFL players. So they ranked pretty low. I'm pretty sure the Bengals ranked 27th and the Jags ranked 28th. I'm pretty sure, but both of them ranked low and those are some big reasons why. But my question to all these teams that ranked low, why not invest in your investment? Every single year, NFL teams spend at least $180, $190 million on player salaries. Why would you not want to benefit those players that you've given that money by at least like doing small things like making sure that their wives and girlfriends have an area to breastfeed that's not a public restroom floor? Question mark? Extra question mark? Anyways, there was one other report that the Arizona Cardinals charge their players for food in the offseason when they come to the facility. I thought that was absurd. Okay, why not just take it out of their paycheck, for God's sakes? What, what are we charging people for? You want their visa card at the facility of which they work? That's like saying, I'm going to go to my office tomorrow, and we're going to have lunch, but I have to pay for lunch at the place that I work at. Makes zero sense to me. I can't even believe that was a topic of conversation, but that's going to do it for our NFL news We've got one piece of college football news, as well as kind of a question to go into this. The College Football Rules Committee passed some new rules, and it's to kind of save time to make games go by shorter. So first up, no consecutive timeouts anymore. I think that's a pretty big deal because that takes off an extra minute, minute and a half, maybe even two minutes in the game at the close ends of game at halftime and in the fourth quarter. 
Also, no untimed downs at the end of the first and third quarter. You know, like how you have a play with five seconds to go in the third quarter and they hike the ball and they throw it and it's a pass interference and they're like, oh, we have to replay the down and it's going to be an untimed down. Well, that takes like an extra 30, 45 seconds to do and it actually adds on quite a few minutes of time. So they've taken that out of the game to kind of speed it up. Last but not least, they're going to have a running clock like the NFL does outside of the two-minute warning. And I don't know if they're going to have a two-minute warning, but that's what it's going to be. At the two-minute mark, first downs, out-of-bounds are going to stop the clock. I think that's a brilliant idea. So the question was, was this good for competition? Now, a lot of you would just think, oh, it's good to have less timed games because I don't want to sit there and watch a a four-and-a-half-hour ad fest. That's great. But Joel Klatt of Fox News actually mentioned that this is actually something towards being more competitive in these games. Now think about it. If you were a really dominant team, what do you need to keep scoring more and more and more to obliterate your opponents? You need more possessions. Okay. If these possessions are being taken away because the time in the game is going by faster, so you don't have all these stoppages, then guess what? You don't have as many scores because you don't have as many possessions. I'm a fan of these rule changes. I think it does add some competition levels to the game that are outside of actual talent on either side of the ball. I'm a fan of what they've done so far. I think they could even take it a step further, like Joel Klatt was saying, and just make every single play a running clock no matter what. Then you really, instead of getting 13 possessions in the game, from for both sides combined, I mean, you would get eight or nine. So the score goes from being, let's say, 42 to 24. You take a few scores off, and it's 31 to 20. Now, obviously, that doesn't sound nearly as good in terms of like, oh, well, you went from having a 16-point lead or whatever to an 11-point lead. But when the games come down to the little nitty-gritty stuff, the inches in the feet, that might make a difference. So I'm a fan of this. I appreciate that question. We're going to move on into our winners and losers of the college basketball regular season. I was a huge fan of our winners. A lot of the winners had one common theme that I'll get to at the end of the winners. So let's go ahead and get started. First up, big time winner, Kansas State, predicted to finish last in the Big 12, not ranked in the top 100 teams according to CBS. They are currently 11th in the country in the AP Top 25 poll. And it's all thanks to Keontae Johnson, a former Florida Gator who, I don't know if you guys remember, but collapsed on the floor a couple of years ago and could not play the game. He didn't know if he was ever going to be able to play the game of basketball again. And he's back this year for his senior season, averaging 17 points and seven rebounds, leading the team in rebounds and scoring. Tremendous job from him. All the props to him, I think that he has turned out to be an awesome success story. Not to mention, common theme we're going to get into later. Second winner of the NCAA regular season, Marquette. Another non-top 100 team, according to CBS, predicted to finish 8th in the Big East. They just now won the Big East outright. They are ranked number 6 in the country, and they have one of the most balanced teams in men's basketball right now, in one of the toughest conference in all of college basketball. Extremely impressive job by Marquette. I think they're going to make a lot of noise in the tournament. Last but not least, the third winner, major winner of the regular season, 
Pittsburgh. Now, I guess the experts were dead wrong. Actually, I take that back. I know the experts were dead wrong. They were predicted to finish 14th in the ACC, and they were not even close to a top 100 team, according to CBS. Now, the common theme that I was talking about earlier is all three of these teams have one thing in common, and that's that their leaders on the team are transfer portal guys. A tremendous success story across all three teams. They've all got sophomores, juniors, and seniors who have transferred from other schools. Extremely impressive for me to see these actual stories work out. You didn't see that two or three years ago. Now you definitely see it across college basketball. Now let's get into the three losers of the NCAA regular season. First up, Villanova. No Jay Wright, big problems. Many predicted that they would finish first in the Big East and win the conference outright, but they struggled throughout the year, even with the talent that they had, like Cam Whitmore, the top 10 prospect that I graded in episode 34. I mean, my goodness gracious, you got to get it together. You got to put your stuff together. I know Jay Wright is an awesome coach, but he cannot be the reason that your team falls apart because he's not there. That just kind of shows that Villanova is not a basketball school. It's a Jay Wright school. Number two on the losers of the regular season, Arkansas. This was the fifth ranked team in the CBS Top 100, and a lot of them predicted that Arkansas would win the conference. Now, I will give them credit. They are a loser on this list because they had a very disappointing season, but a lot of that had to do with Nick Smith Jr.'s injury. He's a top five prospect right now, according to multiple draft boards, and he missed the majority of this season. He's been playing lights out recently, by the way, if you want to go check out his clips. But without him, Arkansas had one of the worst three-point shooting teams in the Power Five, and they were so much slower than any modern NCAA team should be, and it's because they just had no space. That's why they're on this loser's list, because they finished well below expectations. But last but not least, the most disappointing team of the year, North Carolina. The preseason number one team. What happened? Caleb Love and RJ Davis disappointed, and the rumors of them off the court definitely did not help what was going on on the court. Now, they didn't play terribly, but they lost a lot of games, and they might not even make it to the NCAA tournament. I don't know if that's a first in history, but it might be. A preseason number one team not even making the tournament, that's almost unheard of. North Carolina, most disappointing team, the biggest loser on this list, unfortunately, no disrespect, just is what it is. But that's going to do it for our college basketball segment. Let's roll right in into one of the best parts of the show, Plaisant's Q&A. So first question, we're talking about UFC 287 tomorrow, John Jones versus Cyril Gain. This is one of the wildest fights I've ever seen. John Jones has been out for forever, okay? Cyril Gain is the number one fighter, but the title is vacant. So this is a title fight. John Jones just automatically gets a title fight. Now, I'm not a UFC expert, and I'm not going to talk about John Jones outside of the octagon. I'm strictly talking about in the cage. But the question was, since he's been out of the UFC for three years, and he's moving up from light heavyweight to heavyweight for the very first time, will he win tomorrow in a title fight? 
Let's look at some of the accomplishments first of John Jones. He's got the most title wins, the most title defenses, two-time lightweight champ. I don't know how he's done it twice, but he literally got it. He didn't lose it. He didn't lose the belt, okay? He vacated his spot after he won 14 different championship matches. This is the Shaquille O'Neal of the UFC. If it wasn't for all of his off-the-cage, I guess you would call it, off-the-cage issues, he could have easily been the GOAT of the UFC already. But he's coming back, like I said, against the number one ranked heavyweight. He's never fought heavyweight before. But mark my words, John Bones Jones shows up for a title fight. And he's definitely going to show up tomorrow. I'm slamming some moolah on him. He's going to absolutely crush it. John Bones Jones is going to be the heavyweight champion of the world tomorrow. Second question that we've got. Will Deion Sanders boom or bust at Colorado? And will that affect his legacy going forward? I think Dion will be extremely successful at Colorado. And here are three reasons why. Number one, he is the new generation of coaches and he's hired a new generation staff. They're younger. They've got more energy. They're really good recruiters, etc., etc. Reason number two, he himself is an extremely talented recruiter. Anytime you can convince the number one player in the entire country to come to an HBCU that hasn't won a SWAC championship in God knows how long, you've got to be good at recruiting. And that's exactly what he's going to do at Colorado. He's already slammed the transfer portal and killed the game this offseason. They're going to make some noise next year in Colorado. But last but not least, the most important reason, in my opinion, number three, USC and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12 leaving a giant power vacuum at the top. Guess who's going to take advantage of that? This new generation coach who is so full of energy, who is so commanding and aggressive when it comes to competing. Deion Sanders is going to absolutely kill it at Colorado. Now, will he leave for another job? I actually don't know. I think Colorado is a pretty good place. They've got a decent endowment, pretty good facilities, and they're paying him a lot of money. I think Deion Sanders could make his legacy if he could get to a college football playoff at Colorado. But the last question that we've got on our list is a really interesting one and might be my favorite so far of this series. The last question that we've got, if I, me personally, Plazant, had to play a sport, what sport would it be and what position would I play? Now, basketball for me has always been my passion when it comes to playing, but obviously, those dreams were crushed the second I turned 15 and I was only 6'2 and I only had a 22-inch vertical, okay? But what I always was known for was being a scrappy player. I got into quite a few altercations in my heyday, but I always lived for the effort place. The only place that I was consistent from shooting from was the elbow. Anywhere else on the floor, it was going off the back rim or off the front rim or off the side of the backboard, okay? I was not that good of a basketball player. But if I had to pick a position that I would want to play, it would be like a modern NBA forward. A modern one like Draymond Green, who I think most resembles my game. I'm a huge fan of being an emotional leader of a team and leading that emotion 
on the defensive end. Now, shout out to my AAU team from high school, the Birmingham Magic. We might be the worst AAU team of all time, but those are the days that will be forgotten in the record books, and you can book that one. That is not even a pleasant freezing cold take. We were straight awful. And that's going to do it for this episode of Plaisance Podcast. Make sure to hit that like, comment, subscribe, follow button, wherever you are, however you're coming to hear us. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.